This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. This episode is part three on our series on the election. Our first two episodes were about the many questions we get about how the process works and some of the nuances of Pennsylvania election law that voters need to know. For this episode, I talked with three of my ACLU PA colleagues, Advocacy and Policy Director Sarah Mullen, Legal Director Vic Volchek, and Legislative Director Elizabeth Randall. Sarah, Vic, and Liz talk us through what ACLU PA has been doing, what we're planning for the weeks ahead, and how that impacts you as a voter. Remember that you can get important information at our Know Your Rights page, aclupa.org vote. You can also learn more about how to volunteer with ACLUPA at aclupa.org volunteer. And if you run into problems in voting or have questions, call or text 866-OUR-VOTE. That's 866-687-8683. Nonpartisan trained volunteers can guide you through the process. First, we'll hear from Sarah Mullen, who tells us more about election protection and the ACLUPA's role in it. This conversation was recorded on October 15th. Well, Sarah, ACLUPA has been engaged in what we call election protection for a long time, at least 12 years. And I think for the average person, when they think about elections, you know, they think about candidates and campaigns and people trying to win elections. That kind of work is probably intuitive, but what does it mean for an organization like ours? We're nonpartisan. We don't endorse candidates or try to get candidates elected. What does election protection mean for us? So the way we differ and our allies, the way our approach differs on election protection is we are not there to make sure one side or the other wins or one candidate or the other wins. We are there for the voter, representing the voter and their interests and making sure that every eligible voter who wants to gets a chance to cast a ballot that will be counted. And people are worried, you know, this election is unusual. Um, We've had tense elections in the past, but nothing quite like 2020. And people are worried about disruptions on election day. There will be lawyers, of course, there always are lawyers. Uh, But for a person without a JD, how can they be helpful? If someone wants to be helpful on election day, or in the run-up to that date, what can they do to be part of election protection? Sure, there's a lot of different ways um, and different levels, depending on what your comfort is going out in public or um, you know, working with your network. So one option that we, we've done traditionally for the last few cycles is we have people out in the field. And when I say we, I mean the Election Protection Coalition. That is run by Common Cause Pennsylvania, our very close ally, and we send our volunteers there. And so far, we've recruited 1,500. We're really hoping to get about 2,000 volunteers out in the field on Election Day across the state. And these folks are assigned a shift and a turf, and they go around to their polling places in that in that area just to check out what's going on. So they'll report long lines or broken machines, or if there are voters in line who are expressing a problem or somebody comes out and they, they were turned away for one reason or another, these volunteers are there to help the voters. And these folks are trained. This year, we're actually in the training. Uh, Common Cause has added a de-escalation training as well um, in there because one of the things we do, we are planning for and concerned about might be voter intimidation. So that's one way to help is to sign up for election protection. Another way uh, to help is if you're not comfortable going out, 
in, in the in the world right now with COVID, and that's totally understandable. Uh, we really need social media monitors as well. This is also a program run through Common Cause. From the comfort of your own home, you can sit there and you keep an eye on what's going on through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. We've really found in the last few election cycles that increasingly we're finding out about problems on the ground, not so much from the people that are out there, but seeing stuff first reported on Twitter. And then we dispatch our folks out there. So signing up to be a social media monitor is another way. There are even easier ways, which is there's so much misinformation out there or just confusing information. Go to our website, aclupa.org slash vote, and you will find the latest on all, all the information that you need about what do you need to do to cast your ballot for a vote by mail ballot, and what are your rights at the polls. And also, another key piece of election protection is the 866-OUR-VOTE hotline. And we would love for folks to get that, that number out there. So this is a nationwide number, completely nonpartisan. It is there to help voters with the gamut of problems. So whether you just need to know where your polling place is, or if you want to report voter intimidation, or you want to report a broken machine, or you just have questions about the process, all of those can be handled through 866-OUR-VOTE. This phone number is run through Lawyers Committee and they can answer the, the basic questions about where's your polling place, et cetera, but they bump up any of these serious problems to those of us who are in state, in a command center, ready to dispatch lawyers or whatever is needed to help folks on the ground. So those are a number of ways that you can help out if you're really interested. And if folks want to do the observer program where they're at the polls, I take it Common Cause PA has that on their website. I don't think it's on our website just yet, but it will be. Soon. So yes, we, we do have volunteer opportunities. We have links to the Common Cause uh, field volunteer and the social media monitoring. Those are at aclupa.org slash volunteer. <laughs> I should know that page a little better, I guess. <laughs> As I mentioned, people are worried about this election, and we in our coalition have a list of this is not an exaggeration, 200 potential hypothetical scenarios. Um, I Nightmare scenarios, Andy. <laughs> right, nightmares, right? <laughs> I haven't noticed if asteroid hits Pennsylvania on November 2nd is on the list, but uh, there, there are a lot of different potential nightmare scenarios. Assuming that most of them will not happen, what worries you the most? Uh, what do you think is likely and how are we planning for it? Sure. Well, I think I've heard this actually, maybe you've said this before, Andy, we're paid to be paranoid. So we do try to think of every possible problem that could originate on election day or now with vote by mail leading up to election day and afterwards. Um, so everything from challenges to vote by mail ballots to counties that don't get all the ballots out on time, postmarks missing, like a whole variety of things that we, we've thought about. We also think about both private actions, so if there's some kind of voter intimidation by a private entity that comes to Philadelphia or some other town and wants to, in their words, monitor the polls, but can be you know, intimidating to voters as well. So we have thought about all of those things. I'm sure we are missing some. Every, you know, Quite often I get an email from some member or supporter who's like, have you thought about this? And I had not thought about <laughs> that one. So maybe we're up to about 205 or six nightmare <laughs> scenarios. But you know, we've put them into buckets. We have a very large coalition. I just want to stress so much that this is a statewide effort by so many nonpartisan groups. 
groups that work, you know, do grassroots, do get out the vote stuff. Um, there are groups who are more policy wonks involved. Like there's so many people involved in making sure this election goes right, trying to anticipate all of the problems and trying to come up with responses, whether they be going into court or, you know, a public campaign or mobilizing people to come out into the streets to protect the vote. There's just so much energy for this. And so as scared as I am about some of these nightmare scenarios, I think that we have thought through so many things and are really equipped to handle them. Well, that's a good segue to my last question, which is after election day, if ACLUPA has done its job well, what does that look like? Some of us can finally get a a nap in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, No, I think that We've taken for granted so, at least I have in my lifetime, taken for granted that, you know, even if I didn't like the outcome of an election, like there was going to be a peaceful transfer of power and it was going to be decided, even if it was ugly, like 2000 um, in Florida. But I don't think any of us have ever seen an election like this with so many things. I hope that we are overprepared for everything, um, that it goes much more smoothly than I anticipate, and that we get results that everyone believes are accurate and fair and um yeah and and we can finally move on past some of this right sarah well i know you're working hard uh obviously by the fact that you're yearning for a nap so (laughs) thanks for your time (laughs) i really appreciate your insight Uh, thank you andy That's Sarah Mullen, ACLUPA Advocacy and Policy Director. Next up is our Legal Director, Vic Volchek. Throughout 2020, ACLUPA has represented organizations and voters who could be impacted by multiple election-related lawsuits. Vic talks about that litigation and how our legal team is preparing for Election Day and beyond. Vic and I talked on October 16th. So, Vic, this week I've heard you say several times that there are three, as of now, outstanding lawsuits related to the election in Pennsylvania. So I wanted to walk through those one by one. Let's start with the Trump campaign's lawsuit against the Commonwealth and all 67 counties. We are co-counsel representing interveners, and there was a major decision in that case on October 10th. What are the issues in that lawsuit? Yes. Uh, So thank you for having me on. First of all, let me just clarify that there are more than three lawsuits pending, but I think these are the three that are that are consequential. And just want to say that that we are parties in this Trump campaign lawsuit. Um, We have intervened on behalf of the NAACP, Common Cause Pennsylvania and League of Women Voters Pennsylvania. So this is probably the leading case uh, that will eventually get up to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was filed by the Trump campaign, the Republican National Committee, and four Republican congressmen in late June. Uh, there has been full discovery. There's been full briefing. It's been a moving target in terms of what the Trump campaign has gone after. But in the final iteration of the case and what federal judge Nicholas Ronjon decided last Saturday involved three issues. The first is, and and he rejected all three of the Trump campaign's claims, dismissing them. So the the first one was a Trump campaign claim that uh, drop boxes were unconstitutional because they created the opportunity for fraud, which would dilute eligible voters' ballots. 
um, and because there was insufficient uniformity in how counties were deploying drop boxes that it violated the Equal Protection Clause. Judge Ranjan rejected both of those arguments. There is no evidence that uh, drop boxes create opportunities for fraud beyond any that exist for other modes of voting. In many states, they have been using drop boxes for years and years and years. Tellingly, the Trump campaign initially alleged that there was all sorts of fraud from these drop boxes, but when the judge forced them to put up or shut up with evidence, they came back and said, oh, no, 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 we don't have evidence. We never really claimed we had evidence. We're just saying that there's the possibility, and because of that possibility, you've got to eliminate them as a tool for people to be able to vote. And that's just hogwash. You know, when we're in an unprecedented pandemic and finding ways for people to be able to vote safely and easily is really, really important. And drop boxes are a time-tested way of doing that. So that's the first issue. The second issue is the Trump campaign's challenge to a Pennsylvania law that restricts poll watchers to being registered voters in the same county. Okay, so poll watchers are something set up under the election code. I think virtually all states have them. It allows the parties to be able to send in their own people just to monitor and make sure that everything's above board. It is something that certainly the ACLU supports. We want transparency. A lot of these poll watchers use that uh, opportunity to, to kind of check off which of their voters have already voted. If it gets late in the day and they've got people that they you know, think should be voting that will support their candidate, they will make calls and do their get out the vote effort. So it's a perfectly legitimate operation, but there are concerns about relaxing the restriction on people having to live in the same county the Republicans tried in 2016 in a different federal case to get rid of it. The judge there rejected it. And on Saturday, Judge Ron John also rejected that argument. The third issue that is before the uh, federal courts may be the most important. And it is one that the Trump campaign added very late in the game, sometime in, in mid to late September but the judge nonetheless addressed it. And they are challenging the Secretary of State's guidance, which says that elections boards cannot throw out mail ballots based on signature comparison. You know, what's important to understand is that the process for getting a mail ballot and voting it is different from showing up at the polls. You know, it, it may be self-evident, but in order to get your ballot, uh, your mail-in ballot, you have to present some kind of state-issued ID or the last four digits of your social security number. There is a signature on that application. That is the point at which the elections boards We'll check to see that this is the appropriate voter or not. And as we've seen from numbers uh, around the state, uh, you know, not everybody, not everybody's application is granted. Most of them are, and most of them should be, but a handful they are rejecting for one reason or another. The Republicans and the Trump campaign want to be able to challenge the signature match after the ballots come in because it would be a recipe for disaster 
if you read the New York Times, they had a, a little exercise earlier this week where they, they gave you know, eight or nine signatures and said, see if you can figure out which two are the same person. And you know, most people I know, including myself, it took us three or four tries to, to figure it out. It is difficult, if not impossible to do, especially if you're not an expert. None of the elections boards are experts. And so if you open up that process, it's gonna create chaos in the counting of mail, mail ballots. Rightfully, uh, Judge Ranjan rejected that, saying it is not required by the code. It is not unconstitutional to, to not have that. Um, so that's the third issue. And we're now up and away and shortly will be in the appeals court and eventually, I'm sure, in the United States Supreme Court. Well, on the signature issue, well, first of all, I can imagine, like you said, the the chaos that would that that could create where on election day, which is when county election offices can start to open those mail ballots, if there are party operatives there challenging signatures, um, now you're going to have you could have potentially uh, large numbers of voters whose ballots are suddenly being challenged and, and potentially thrown out when their application was accepted by the county election office. I just think it's worth emphasizing just how problematic that would be if the Trump campaign's argument prevailed. Right. And given that the expectation is that we're going to have about 3 million mail ballots coming in, which is, you know, I think 10 times what they've ever had because they just opened up the process to everybody last, last November, so yeah, I mean, it, it would be a nightmare. It, it, it may well make it impossible to, um, to complete the count in time. And when I say in time is there are some, some fairly tight time limits set by federal law for when Pennsylvania has to complete the voting so that they can certify the election and the electors for the electoral college. So you know, there, there has, have been some publications that have talked about how the game plan may be to try to stall and delay to prevent the certification of the vote, which would open the doors potentially to the Pennsylvania General Assembly selecting the electors. And I do want to get to the kind of hypothetical scenarios you're planning for. But before we get there, the signature issue actually is a good segue into the other two lawsuits that you're working on. I know one of them does involve the signature issue and it's in state court. So let's talk about those two other cases. Yeah, so there, there's three cases that are looking at a total of four issues. So we've covered three of those issues. So the, the second case is one that was filed uh, just a couple of weeks ago by the Secretary of State with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, asking that the court look at their decision to not do signature matches with the return ballots and to proclaim that as a matter of state, uh, statutory and constitutional law, that this is acceptable. Just a couple of days ago, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court announced that they would exercise what's called their extraordinary jurisdiction or King's Bench jurisdiction to make a decision in that case. So briefing will be completed by uh, Friday, October 16th, and we expect a decision from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on that issue, uh, well, I guess sometime the week of October the 19th. We need to remember that that issue is also percolating in federal court, and we do expect the Trump campaign to file an appeal with the 
United States Third Circuit Court of Appeals and, and thereafter take it to the uh, United States Supreme Court. And then the additional case is, uh, is that the Pennsylvania Democratic Party case, which is in front of the U.S. Supreme Court right now? Correct. And, and so this is a completely different issue from the three that we've just been discussing. This uh, comes out of a case that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decided back in September. The one issue that uh, the Republican state senators have taken up to the Supreme Court is the PA Supreme Court's decision to extend the return date on mail ballots from eight o'clock on election day, which is Tuesday, until five o'clock on Friday. And what the court said is that the, the, the ballots have to be postmarked before eight o'clock on election day. So, you know, whatever your decision, your ballot, that the act of voting takes place by the deadline. But because of delays that we've seen reported at the Postal Service, the fact that the Postal Service in July sent a letter to the Pennsylvania Secretary of State saying, hey, uh, given the delays, we don't know that you're going to be able to meet your deadlines. You know, based on that evidence, the Supreme Court said, okay, we're going to extend the deadline for receipt of ballots until Friday at five o'clock. There's also a problem in that that uh, I'm sure people have noticed many times you get a piece of correspondence and there there is no postmark stamp on there. Uh, and that's not the fault of the voter, that's the fault of the Postal Service. And so what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said is if there is no indication that this was mailed after eight o'clock on Tuesday. In other words, if there's no indication when it was mailed, uh, there's no timed uh, postmark on there. The presumption is that it was mailed on time and should be counted. So the Republicans are challenging uh, the extension of that deadline. The case is fully briefed. It has been fully briefed for several days. Um, we're expecting a decision from the United States Supreme Court any day now. So I wanna ask you a process question, and be a bit of a legal nerd here for a minute. <laughs> um, I'm not a lawyer, but I've hung out with you for 16 years, so I picked up some things <laughs> along the way. Um, my understanding was that, that didn't the state Supreme Court, does, did they decide that on state constitutional issues? I guess my question is, how, why is this at the U.S. Supreme Court if it's a state, state issue? Because the uh, Republicans are claiming that it's it violates the U.S. Constitution. So if if truly there is a decision that is confined to state law, then the U.S. Supreme Court has no jurisdiction. To the extent that there is either a claim or defense that involves federal law, uh, including the U.S. Constitution, then the U.S. Supreme Court would have jurisdiction. So, you know, I, I, I don't think there's much of an argument that the U.S. Supreme Court needs to stay out. I think there are many arguments why the U.S. Supreme Court should not disturb the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision, but we'll see what they do with that. And one other process question about that. So the plaintiff is the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. The defendant is the Secretary of State. So what, why is it that the Republicans are able to appeal that to the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, so they were granted intervention status by the um, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. I mean, you know, it's, it's fairly common that um, in these election disputes, when, when one party files a lawsuit, 
uh, which which happens regularly, uh, typically against election officials, whether it's at the state or county level, the courts just as a matter of due course will allow intervention status to the other party, right? It makes sense. You want both of them involved in the litigation. Sure. I knew that we had been denied uh, as interveners for our clients. Um, but yeah, the, the, thanks for the reminder about that. So the parties are involved. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about these um, uh, hypothetical potential scenarios. I know the legal team is preparing for all kinds of scenarios on election day and afterwards. Without getting too dark, <laughs> uh, what worries you the most and how are you and your team planning for it? Yeah, so um, look, it's, it's, it's easy to get dark. Uh, I mean, it's called nightmare scenario planning for a reason. It, it, it would be a nightmare. I'm skeptical that these things are gonna happen or they're gonna be, if they do happen, that they're gonna be as bad as, as some people might fear. But I think out of prudence, it is important to prepare nonetheless. We've kind of looked at this in, we've grouped it into four categories of, of problems. And these are what you know I, I would consider would, in, would potentially involve major litigation. This is distinct from problems that people may have at the polls. We have a robust system where we've got lawyers in most of the, the counties who are ready, willing, and able to go into court to make sure that um, eligible voters are able to, to cast a ballot on election day. Here we're talking about just you know, bigger kinds of systemic uh, problems or ones that are much more uh, severe. So of the four categories, the, the, the first one is just what I'll call bad behavior outside of the polling places. So, um, you know, it's, it could be intimidation, harassment, threats, obstruction. Uh, folks may have seen some video from a couple of weeks ago in Fairfax County, Virginia, where there were some protests. Um, no, they weren't violent, they weren't threatening, but they were obstructing people's ability to access the polling place. Um, you know, whether it's something like that or whether it's armed militia showing up at the polls that uh, in any way interferes with voters' ability or willingness to vote is a problem, obviously. Um, in, in those situations, the, the elections officials should take steps to address those kinds of problems. You know, the danger is that if they don't or they don't do so effectively, um, what's going to happen? And so we are preparing for that eventuality. I think it's unlikely, but we would potentially go into court to get some kind of injunction to either remove or move back those protesters and or to create some kind of buffer zone to allow voters to go to the polls safely. Again, I, I find this scenario highly unlikely. If it does happen, I can't see it happening at more than, you know, one or two of the thousands of polling places uh, across the state. And the second issue is what I would call bad behavior inside the polls on election day. Um, as we talked about earlier, we you know, Pennsylvania allows for these um, poll watchers uh, who represent the party, uh, you know, wouldn't be expecting violence to occur, occur inside the polls, but we have in the past, unfortunately, seen situations where these poll watchers abuse their authority and begin to challenge the eligibility of many or most or every 
voter, um, whether there's a basis to do so or not. And, and the vast majority of times there's no basis to do so. The reason that's a problem is that it generates really long lines. So if you've already got unprecedented turnout levels, which you know, some people are expecting, and you've got an hour long wait to vote, and then the poll watchers start making challenges without real basis to do so, those lines could grow to two, three, four hours, which has the potential to disenfranchise folks. We saw this especially at um, universities around the state back in 2004. Uh, during that election and also in, in 2008. So, so that's the second sort of category of problems that we're looking at. The third category involves mail ballots, as we've talked about, and uh, whether or not there are kind of massive challenges made to those to slow down the vote. You know, we should have guidance before election day uh, from the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court about that signature match issue that we discussed earlier. Um, part of that litigation uh, involves the question whether or not the parties are going to be able to make any challenges to those mail ballots. Um, uh, Pennsylvania law right now says that the, any challenge that you're going to make, any challenge that is available, has to be made by the Friday before Election Day. Um, and so you know, if that is upheld, that's really going to cut through a lot of the arguments that the other side may have um, to bring challenges. But, but again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the reason that is a concern is that there are timelines for the state to certify the election. And as you mentioned, the, the legislature has refused to change the time when local officials can start to count mail ballots. So, Right now, under the law, it's it's uh, 7 a.m. on election day. We are one of only two states that has this restriction. I mean, in other states, they can start, you know, processing the mail ballots as soon as they come in, even weeks before. Uh, the elections officials in Pennsylvania have uniformly requested the legislature to please relax that time so they can start counting early. And the reason is if you can't start until seven in the morning and you have millions of ballots to count, it is unlikely that they're gonna be able to do that by the end of election day. Um, and given that the deadline is extended until Friday now anyway for return of those, you know, there, people should not be expecting a result in Pennsylvania probably I'd say for seven to 10 days is, is what I'm looking at. But if those challenges to the mail ballots are super vigorous, they could delay the certification of the vote to a time where it gets a little bit dicey and may open the doors to the Pennsylvania legislature trying to take the vote away from, from voters. Um, so that's the fourth category of problems that we are preparing for is, you know, what happens if we get to that dicey period at the end of November, early December, um, where the, the certification of the vote has been delayed. Liz Randall and I are going to talk a little bit about that as well. I mean, that, that the issue of uh, pre-canvassing, that the idea that election offices, election staffers can open mail ballots and at least open them uh, log in that the person submitted their ballot 
flatten them out and get them ready for scanning. You know, a bill like that would have passed unanimously in the state legislature, but the legislation that had that change was loaded up with all kinds of other provisions and that ended up creating um, a disagreement between the governor and the legislature. And now here we are. Um, yeah. That, that pre-canvassing can't happen until, as you said, uh, the morning of election day. Right. I mean, just just two observations on that. One is that the, the things that the Republicans in the legislature were insisting on in exchange for uh, moving back or moving up that start date were all the things that the Trump campaign is trying to get through litigation and that thus far they have not been able to get. The second observation is that uh, you know we're, we're hearing from some national political folks that oh, no, no, we, we have to have a decision by election day it's really important um, and then you know the, there there is a a simple and straightforward solution to that and that is to allow uh, county elections boards to start counting those ballots earlier and you know the the, the same people who uh, are insisting that we call the election on election day are refusing to to do what's necessary to allow them to to be able to process the votes in a timely fashion. So let's end with something that I think will be more positive. Um, <laughs> if ACLUPA does its job well, as we always do, uh, what does that look like after election day? What's the outcome? You know, I, I think we we all go out and and celebrate. Let me rephrase that because I don't think, you know, I think the ACLU um, can and will play a meaningful role in the election. Certainly our election protection efforts that um, we're doing with a, a lot of wonderful coalition partners that we've been working on for years are going to are going to help innumerable uh, number of voters be able to cast their their ballots on on Election Day and 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 before Election Day. Um, one of the things that I've been heartened by is just how seriously county elections officials and the Department of State um, have been taking the problem. So, you know, the primary was not problem free back in back in June, um, but it was an opportunity to uh, learn from mistakes, learn from problems, and uh, you know, I, I think what we've seen is is really an earnest and good faith effort by, you know, the hardworking men and women who who um, administer our elections at the state and county level. And and by and large, you know, it, it's been impressive. There have been some mistakes. I know Allegheny County sent out twenty nine thousand incorrect ballots, but you know they're moving to correct that uh, as as quickly as they can. You know, mis mistakes are bound to happen. My hope is that it's quiet on election day, that all of these nightmare scenarios that we are anticipating do not, in fact, occur. You know, at the end of the day, success is whether or not the voters have had their say. And what that requires is that all eligible voters who want to cast a ballot are able to do so that those ballots are all counted. And then the, the, the winner of the popular vote in each state and then you know, the electoral college um, becomes elected. And so for, for me, success is that the process works the way that it's designed to work and that uh, the, the people's will is in fact put into effect. 
All right, Vic, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for all your work. I know you're working hard, you and the rest of the team. Um, so uh, every, every, everyone appreciates it and really thankful for your time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Andy. It, it, it is a very important election for, for civil liberties. That's ACLUPA Legal Director Vic Volchek. Finally for this episode, we hear from Legislative Director Elizabeth Randall. As the 2019-20 session at the State General Assembly winds down, Liz has had to deal with several pieces of legislation that would impact how the 2020 election is administered. This conversation was recorded on October 15th, and you'll hear us discuss why that's important. The State House and State Senate are both in session October 19th through the 21st, and this podcast will be posted sometime during that week. So if anything changes with this legislation during the week, we will post updates on our social media platforms and on our website. Let's so hear from Liz, Liz. Unlike some of our colleagues, it seems that your work on election legislation appears to have come to an end. The state Senate and state House have three days left as of recording this. Um, they have three days, October 19th to the 21st, and they have an additional day of session in November, which is typically held for le leadership votes and farewell speeches. Although it is a session day, they could, they could take action that day. But as of now, those are the only days scheduled for the rest of the year. Uh, anything is possible in those three days, of course, but for this conversation, you get to do a recap for us. And as recently as yesterday, we actually received an email from some activists who were asking about the status of the State House's proposed Select Committee on Election Integrity. Summarize for us what that proposal was all about and where it stands as of today. So that was a resolution that was recently introduced that would have created what's known as a select committee in the House. And so I would say think of it kind of as an internal procedural maneuver um, or move by the House um, to establish it's sort of the same mechanism that they use to create standing committees. So like House Judiciary, House Health, any of those types of committees. But select committees are created to carry out specific tasks and in this case, the, um, this Select Committee on Election Integrity was created to, and I'm quoting from the resolution, to investigate, review, and make recommendations concerning the regulation and conduct of the 2020 general election. So um, they are intended to be small committees to look at a particular um, piece of, a particular issue that helps them to make better decisions as they legislate. Um, this particular committee was to be composed of five House legislators, three Republicans and two Democrats, and, but as a select committee, as opposed to any other committees, um, it would have the power to subpoena witnesses, documents, um, and to initiate legal filings. So what I'll just sort of say is to be clear that like as a matter of procedure, there's nothing illegitimate about the House creating a committee like this. Um, but as a practical matter, so we actually saw this during the impeachment hearings when, um, when the House in Congress was issuing subpoenas for people to come in and testify, ambassadors, et cetera, in terms of you know, some of those issues. So this is not an unusual thing, um, or it's not something that's sort of outside the boundaries of what they were allowed to do. The problem was, of course, that the resolution itself raised more questions than it answered. And so I'll just sort of rattle off quickly a couple of the main concerns that we had about it. First was like the timeline that it seemed as if they would begin, they would be able and empowered to begin this kind of investigation prior to and during the elections. So this was not something that was a retroactive sort of analysis of how 
something had, how the election went or issues that arise so that they could fix it for the next time. Um, the second was the scope of the investigative power and the subpoena power that they would have. Um, you know, how broadly could that be used and in what ways? Um, that specifically then triggered issues around interference. Um, if those actions, um, you know, there were concerns that you, they could issue a subpoena to someone who was an election um, official, like on election day that would disrupt um, how the, um, the actual process was going. It could delay election results or it could be even weaponized to impound ballots. Um, and then the sort of last, um, or there's two remaining ones. One was just the committee composition and the selection. So, you know, it's three Republicans and two Democrats, which would, you know, to some extent mean that Democrats would have almost no ability to challenge. I mean, it, was, it would just effectively be the power of the three Republicans that were making decisions about all of these investigations. And then, and then issues around transparency. And so like if they have hearings and um, bring witnesses in, how transparent is that gonna be to the public? So all of those issues were things that got brought up and were repeated and were covered pretty deep, broadly in the media. Um, and certainly House Democrats raised those as issues, but also notably there were a few House Republicans who went publicly on the record saying that they did not support um, this particular resolution to create a committee. It was just introducing a lot of confusion, a ton of questions, and it's just, it was sort of dropped into the middle of a very, um, I think, contentious sort of, uh, a lot of contentious conversations around the election. Um, and so about a week ago, the majority leader um, in the House, Representative Benninghoff, um, emailed his members to say that he had removed the resolution from the voting calendar for the remainder of the legislative session. And so fortunately, we think we may be, we may be done with that, at least for now. It got a lot of attention in a very short period of time. I mean, that, that resolution was filed on a Monday. They voted it out of committee on Wednesday, and they intended to vote it the next day, Thursday. And ironically, the only reason they didn't is because they had to cancel session because a member had COVID-19. That's right. That's right. Um, so we were but, sort of spared by that a bit. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think your point that's really important to reemphasize is the fact that this was not, this was a review, proposed review in the midst of the election. It wasn't like, hey, in January 2021, we should get together and just do a review of the election, see if there are things that need changed or fixed. Um, this was a, a smoke bomb right in the middle of the election. That's right. And I just think it was so ill. I think it, the whole thing being rushed in the way that you had just indicated, Andy, is, is spot on in the sense that I think the provisions were unclear. There was a lot of, um, and I think in a way that even the bill's sponsor, um, Representative Garth Everett, who is the chair of the House State Government Committee, um, I don't know if he was the one who actually penned the entire thing, um, but there were definitely very good questions that were raised during the course of the committee hearing or the committee meeting where this bill was, when it was being considered, when the resolution was being considered, um, that I think he was beginning to also question. I mean, and so I think it was just right for, um, whether it was justified or not, it was poorly executed and I think too vague and it just, it only added additional fuel to, you know, people's already sort of raw nerves, <laughs> so. Yeah, there's another piece of legislation sitting out there um, <clears throat> but appears as of now, October 15th, uh, to be dead. And that's House Bill 2626. Now, this is an election code bill. It has multiple provisions in it. The part that is most in demand by election directors, and, and this is in counties across the state, you know, rural, suburban, urban counties all asking for this, is the ability to open and prepare 
mail ballots for scanning before election day. That's known as pre-canvassing. And under current law, pre-canvassing can't start until the morning of election day. This is a no-brainer change to the law. If a bill that just did that came up in the House and Senate, it would probably pass unanimously. Um, but that's not what has happened here. What, what happened and, and why did this not make it to the governor's desk? So it's interesting, even following from the, uh, the conversation we just had about the select committee um, and kind of the intent around it, the House Bill 2626 originally started as a bill that was intended to respond to a report that the legislature had commissioned. It came, it was generated originally out of the House that was a retrospective analysis that wanted to look at how the primary election um, had been executed if there were issues that had come up, but that was not something that would have subpoena power, right? So there was a, um, so what the House um, had initiated after the primaries was to do a full report, which is actually really helpful and was able to solicit input from election directors um, from all over the Commonwealth. Um, and so the original bill um, in the House was largely procedural and had some provisions that we were not a fan of. Um, but at the same time, tended to tracked fairly closely to, to a lot of the internal mechanisms of voting um, and how elections were administered um, that responded to some of those concerns that were raised in the report. Um, so, but then after it got, um, it got out of committee and then um, simultaneously there had been a Senate bill um, that was introduced by Senate Republican leadership um, that contained a lot of different changes. And so the bill sort of morphed from the, its original purpose is kind of more of a administrative procedural type of bill um, and introduced several provisions that were um, of concern to us. Um, and I'll just say briefly that um, the biggest things that we took issue with were actually, are actually two issues that have been, since this was introduced, have been resolved by the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. One was, um, limiting the places where voters could drop off their, their voted mail ballots, um, which would have had the effect of, of eliminating the ability to use drop boxes. Um, and the other, the other provision in this bill would have given, um, would have permitted partisan poll watchers to work anywhere in the state as opposed to being um, required to um, limited to the county in which the watcher was registered. Um, and so both of those have sort of been resolved. That being said, both versions of the bill, um, both in the House version actually allowed 21 days um, to pre-canvas. Um, and then when it got changed, it's been dropped to three days. But we've heard across the board, um, Republican, Democrat, red, blue, purple counties, um, rural, urban, as you had said, election directors are desperate um, for the ability to pre-canvas early. Um, and so one would think that it's, um, that it would be a no-brainer, but with those additional, um, the, um, the changes, particularly around poll watchers and drop boxes, the governor pledged to veto the bill. And so that's where we've sort of been sitting kind of ever since. Um, and that was, so the bill technically, it passed the House uh, 112 to 90 back in, in September um, and came out of the state, I'm sorry, the Senate State Government Committee uh, passed out of there and has already received second consideration. So it's on the verge, like they could pass it, but the governor said he's going to veto it um, if it has any of those provisions in it. There's been, we've seen reports where there have been apparently some ongoing conversations between the governor and Republican leadership in both chambers 
Um, but as you mentioned, with only sort of three, really three effective session days left, it would be a pretty heavy lift to do either to introduce a new bill or to gut and replace, you know, to completely change what this, what the House bill contains. It's, I guess it's possible, but that would assume everyone is getting along fine and doesn't want to drop in any, you know, poison, poison pills into it. So I think the chances are fairly slim, although I think everyone would agree that that's an incredibly important um, change. And as I said, we're, we are recording this on October 15th. This will be posted the week of October 19th. So um, if folks should stay updated by keeping an eye on our social media um, and also aclupa.org slash vote, which is where we keep things updated um, as they happen. So if by chance that bill does pass, uh, we'll certainly make sure folks are aware of it. Uh, so the last thing is, and this feels like it was a decade ago, but uh, last November, um, the legislature passed and the governor signed Act 77. That legislation, and that's actually the same legislative session, which is amazing <laughs> <laughs> with everything that's happened just in the last seven months. It's hard to believe, but um, that legislation did make significant reforms to Pennsylvania's election law, including enabling vote by mail for everyone. And it passed with bipartisan support. An overwhelming number of Republicans voted for it. And yet some GOP state legislators are now in the strange position of criticizing a concept that they supported just 11 months ago. So the only explanation for that is Donald Trump, right? Is it just crass politics at its worst? Last year, Republican legislators understood that vote by mail is good for all voters. Yes, well, it does feel like a century ago. Um, it was a very different time and place. And I think, you know, I will say this as a caveat that any huge bill like this, um, because it has so many different provisions, it is altogether possible that there are legislators who liked certain elements of it and did not like other elements. And so, but nevertheless voted in favor of it. And I think that's probably the case with almost any piece of legislation, particularly something this big and sweeping. But that being said, um, you know, I'll also flag that one of the trade-offs, um, and, you know, there was some concern about the elimination of straight ticket voting. Um, I just double-checked before we started recording, Andy, and now it's down to, there are only six states remaining that allow straight ticket voting. Um, so states are getting rid of that provision. It is something that um, uh, was a, a bone of contention um, about allowing vote by mail, but also taking away um, straight ticket voting. Um, but straight ticket voting really isn't an impediment. You know, it doesn't create any impediment to being in the ballot. You know, it doesn't create um, a problem in terms of access. But um, so I think, you know, to some extent, there was a trade-off that Republicans were working with as that was a major deal sweetener, perhaps, to get the vote by mail. But I would say that, you know, in any of the messaging and the conversations around the passage of this, like, major overhaul that was desperately needed and for decades, we, had, we really needed to overhaul a lot of how we administer voting, um, you know, there was huge Republican support and very strong bipartisan support for this. Um, all of the, all but two of the Republicans in the House voted for it and all the Republican senators voted in favor of it. Um, and reg routinely um, sort of praised the um, expansion of access to, um, to voting through the vote by mail. And I just, you know, sort of want to note that, um, you know, there is no, um, there is nothing about vote by mail similar to when Andy, you and I in another lifetime were working on online voter registration. 
um, another kind of another you know expansion of access to um, to the franchise um, that does not favor one party over the other. Um, I will also note that um, having been a well-heeled sort of veteran of working on campaigns, that um, that it has been pretty much the case that in many ways, um, certainly in many states, uh, the Republicans have been very good and very effective at um, utilizing um, the tool of vote by mail and certainly with absentee ballots at making sure that that's, they use it effectively to get out their, their um, members, their voters vote. And so in that regard, look, I mean, I think no one, I've never seen sort of such a, a fast about face in a way that not only, you know, in the face of a bipartisan effort um, to ensure um, vote by mail, which has routinely been shown to be safe and secure, so quickly sort of turning not only on, I think what they know to be true um, and changing their messaging about it, but also in a way that I think undercuts some of the efforts that they've made you know, historically at being very good about being able to organize and utilizing that tool to ensure that they increase um, voter participation from you know, Republicans in their party in their state or counties or where, 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 you know, where you may have them. So you know, I do think that that's, um, I, I would say that the rhetoric coming from the president, the persistent false claims, you know, really have um, have muddied the waters on this, and I think to some extent they may have this may have a um, the effect of of um, being a bit of a, a boomerang. It's going to blow up, I think, in their faces a bit. It's going to cause people to have you know sowing unnecessary doubt and really false narratives that um, undermine not only this very safe and secure process, but also one that has been a very effective way for, um, for I, any party really um, to, to, get out, to get out their vote. Well, and as you said, as someone who ran campaigns yourself, you know, you, you want every tool in the toolbox to get your voters out. I, I had that conversation with a Republican state legislator from Southeast PA a number of years ago who said, you know, he'll encounter voters whose schedules are not certain on That's election right. day. Mm -hmm. And he said, if I can tell them, Hey, here, just apply for a, for a mail-in ballot right now. Uh, that's great. That's great for him. And it doesn't matter what party you're from. It's, it's, it's another tool in the toolbox. Well, right. And the, the one thing that it has been shown to do is that it increases voter participation regardless of party. I mean, and so any way that you can expand people's access to voting tends to have amazingly the effect of increasing the number of people who do vote. Um, and so, and it's really up to parties or, um, local or organizations um, to help use that tool in order to get out as many people to, you know, include them in that process. So. All right, Liz, well, thank you. You survived another legislative session. I feel like that. Uh, I owe you, we all owe you congratulations and thanks just for that alone. No problem. <laughs> one last plug. I just want to make a quick plug. Okay. When you're at the, uh, on election day and even the run-up, be kind and patient with your county election officials and the poll workers. Uh, make sure you thank them. I just want to sort of underscore that, you know, the, the kinds of things that the, um, this, the election is, this one, this upcoming one is a confluence of several significant changes to how we administer our elections, whether it's we're, all counties will have new voting machines, they're processing all these new and updated voter registrations, 
um, administering a vote by mail process that's still in its infancy and expected to be used by a historic sort of unprecedented, that's not the most overused term this year, I don't know what <laughs> is, but um, by a, a lot of people. And then all in the context of also administering a full-blown in-person voting, um, in-person voting at polling locations that, you know, have to meet CDC guidelines because we're in the middle of a once in a century pandemic, right? So there's a lot going on um, and sort of just finishing up within the legislative lane on that. You know, we have chronically underfunded our county election offices. Um, it's one of the first things that legislators cut from the budget. And so, you know, our election offices are the infrastructure of our democracy and failing to fund them or only thinking about them when there's panics or pandemics or um, other things that go wrong is just absolutely not the way to go. So if we want to make sure that we um, that our counties are able to pull off smooth and seamless elections, we need to make sure that that we fund them properly, not just adequately, but perhaps even robustly. That's another part of this work that you've seen as someone who used to work for a county. That's uh, right. <laughs> so shout out to everybody who is in a county office at this moment. Uh, Thank trying to you make for this your election. service. It's so much. And they're, yeah, so I just wanted to put a plug into them because it's, um, it's a heavy lift and they're dealing with a lot. So, Awesome. Thanks, Liz. All right. Thanks, Andy. That's ACLUPA Legislative Director Liz Randall. Thank you again to Sarah, Vic, and Liz for all of that helpful information. Be sure to check out aclupa.org slash vote for our Know Your Rights page. We will also post links to more information about some of the topics we discussed in the show notes. By the way, this is the 50th episode of Speaking Freely, which feels like a milestone. It has been a fulfilling experience for me over the two and a half years that we've been producing this podcast, and it happens because we have a team that makes sure the show gets produced and done well. I want to thank Amy Giacomucci, who has been our editor from the start and a helpful guide on best practices in podcasting. Thanks to Cambria Lee, who helps with graphics and makes sure the pod gets pushed out on social media and edits our video clips. My gratitude also goes out to Executive Director Reggie Shuford and the board of ACLUPA, who are regular listeners and big cheerleaders for the show. My thanks also goes to all of the wonderful guests that we've had. I encourage you to go back and listen to some of our past episodes for more insights on the many civil liberties issues we're working on. And finally, thank you to you, the listener. We keep the show going because you listen. Our hope is that you find the podcast informative and that it motivates you to be involved and support our mission to advance civil liberties in whatever way you feel so moved to do. That is a wrap on episode 50. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be healthy and be free. Be free.